0: We're going to read from the Bible today. We have uh, putting we're putting a pause on John until the new year. so we're reading from Titus today, Titus chapter 3. If you're reading in the church Bibles, it's page 966. We're taking it from verse three. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because, of righteous, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Janet. We're going to pray and then we'll get into this passage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thanks uh, so much for what we've already seen this morning. Thanks, Lord, that we're able to sing and enjoy the fact that you have entered into the world to save us. Lord, we pray now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would shape us. We pray that you would challenge us and change us. We pray that you would help us to put aside what uh, things are worrying us and concerning us and come before you and hear your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always a joy to hear about people putting their trust in Jesus, especially if you remember we began this year at Southside talking about the fact that 2019 is here because God is going to save people. Uh, We began the year talking about how this year is here because God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so we talked about that at the start of the year, that our God is missional. And throughout the year, it's been so good to see people put their trust in Jesus. In fact, uh, including Josh and Adriana here at Southside in the life course and in English for Life, we've seen seven people put their trust in Jesus. Uh, For the first time, we'll recommit after a bit of wandering away. And it's so good when you see that, but it's good to see that not just here at Southside but all over the globe. And one of my favorite stories, uh, the most unique story, I think, outside of our church, obviously the ones that happen here are my favorite ones, but outside of this is what happened with Kanye West. So I don't know if you saw that, but Kanye West uh, released an album called Jesus is Lord. And if you began this year thinking, which celebrity is going to put their trust in Jesus? Kanye West would be at the bottom of that list. In fact, if you know this guy, over the last few years, he's said some crazy stuff, right? I mean, there's just no other way to describe what he said. In fact, he said a few years ago, he said this line, I am the number one human being in music. Everyone else is number two. And he wasn't just talking about music now, but forever. He's number one. In 2014, he was on a radio show, uh, and he said, I am a God. And people said, who do you think you are? And he said, I just told you who I am. I'm a god. This guy's nuts. In fact, in 2018, my favourite thing that he did was he released a song called "Lift Yourself." I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he literally sung the word "poop ditty scoop" ten times, over and over again. He just sung that. It was like a troll to the whole music world. Now, no one would listen to that, right? Number two on the US charts. It got to this guy's nuts. And yet this year, he released an album called Jesus is Lord, where he sung this line. Bailey, if we can have a look at that line. He said this line, if that's all all the love you have, that's all you've got. To sing of change, you think I'm joking. To praise his name, you ask what I'm smoking. Yes, I understand your reluctancy. Yeah, but I have a request, you see. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. Please pray for me. This is a guy that's gone from, I am a God, poop, diddy, scoop, to in humility, if you're reluctant of my change, that's all right, but please pray for me. Now, whenever you see stuff like this, it raises a pretty countercultural question why would anyone put their trust in Jesus? Why would anyone say Jesus is Lord? Especially since if you look at the media and social media, the message that we get these days is people are running away from Christianity. Right? That's what we're told. This thing will be dead in a few years. No one's trusting in Jesus anymore. Everyone's, they're going away in droves. That's what the message we get. So why is it that we have people? Why is it that we have pockets of people put their trust in Jesus for the first time? Why would anyone call Jesus Lord? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to open up our Bibles. We're not just going to hear Josh and Adriana's story, although we're grateful for that, nor are we going to Google Kanye's story, although maybe do that. Maybe not. You'll probably find some skeletons in his closet. But what we're going to do is ask this question of God. Why would anyone put their trust in Jesus? And we're going to do that as we look at Titus chapter 3. And what we see first and foremost is in this, we see that the reason people put their trust in Jesus is because of verse 3, we have a problem. He says this, verse 3, At one time, you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So, why would anyone put their trust in Jesus? Well, what God's word tells us is because humanity has a problem. We've got a problem, and the problem is we are slaves, we're trapped. We're slaves to sin and death, and we can't get ourselves out of that problem. You you see that with his language there, right? He says, you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Why would anyone put their trust in Jesus? It's because we have an issue. We have a problem, and that problem we can't fix. Now, I wonder, as you're sitting there being told that you're a slave to your passions and pleasures, how does that make you feel? What thoughts do you have being told that you're trapped to your own desires and you can't do anything about that? See, for me, instinctively, when I hear that I'm a slave to my passions and pleasures, I fight against that, right? Like, I, w- I want to push back on that. I mean, not me, right? I'm more sophisticated than being a slave. I'm the master of my own life. I can do whatever I want to do, right? Passions and pleasures won't get me. No, I- I'm in control of my life. None of us want to admit that we're not in control, and so being told that we're a slave, we want to push back against that, fight against that. That's not me. But what if there was truth to this? What if in, in God's word, what he's saying here, there is actually truth in this. What if we're not as in control as we think we are? Or more than that, what if we're just a little bit more temperamental than we give ourselves credit for? See, see, I think if we think about this for a moment, our passions and our pleasures. So our passions, what I want, and our pleasures, what we get. I think we could start to see that maybe there's truth to this. I mean, let's think about food. You know, one of the most basic human needs. So hunger is the passion, what I want. Food is what I get. Now, has anyone ever found themselves a slave to hunger or food? I mean, let's just think about it with hunger, Anyone been into the, the situation where their hunger's controlled them or changed them? Anyone been hangry, right? Where their hunger starts affecting their other m- emotions? Anyone ever got shaky from their, like the, the rest of their body just starts tapping out because they're so hungry? Anyone ever been to the grocery store on an empty stomach and you end up spending like $100 more than you were going to spend before you went? You know, we've heard this statement, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Anyone ever been there where you've eaten so much food because you were hungry or you upsized because you were so hungry? You know, you were like, oh, the medium meal will do me, but I'm really hungry, so I'm going to get another Whopper and another big, maybe that's just me. Uh, anyone been there, though, where we've been in that experience where hunger's actually changed us so that we've justified doing things we wouldn't normally do? Or what about with food? Right, you, that delicious meal that we've got... Anyone ever been in that situation where you've pushed through the whole meal despite being full since halfway through? Anyone ever gone back for seconds or more that you didn't need, but it was a buffet and it was free and I had to do it? We've all been there, right? Literally all of us have been to that situation where our hunger has controlled us in some way, where food in front of us has controlled us in some way. We've all been in that situation. And even when we look basic at the basic thing of food and hunger, we could see that, okay, maybe I'm not as in control as I think I am. Maybe I am a little bit more temperamental than I give myself credit for. But see, the, the problem is it's not just food and hunger. The problem's bigger than that. See, I was listening to an uh, audio book this week that was talking about the fact that our emotions cloud our judgment. It was by a behavioral scientist that said in, in looking at people... What he could see was in studying people, emotions affect decisions. You justify doing things you wouldn't normally do because of your emotions. So sadness and joy and excitement. And he did this experiment. And this experiment is, uh, one, it shocked me as I was listening in the car. The experiment was this. He got a bunch of students together and he asked them this question about a relationship. And the question was, would you cheat on your partner? The majority of people who were answering this in this experiment said, no, they wouldn't cheat on their partner. Then what they did in this experiment was showed the people that they asked that first question to a series of pornographic images, and then asked the same question again. Would you cheat on your partner? And as this behavioural scientist looked at the results, he found that you were 136% more likely to change your answer and say that you would cheat on your partner after what just happened. Now, not only does that show us the damage of porn, but I think it shows us that actually, as humans, we're not as free as we think we are. That it doesn't actually take that much for us to do things we wouldn't normally do. If you look outside of the Bible at this point, what you see is what you could argue is that actually we are slaves to our passions and pleasures. But see, this is what the Bible is saying. You're a slave. You're stuck to sin and to death, to your, plash, to your passions and your pleasures. And no one wants to be told that. You know, we, we want to be our own master. No one wants to be told that I am a slave But this is what God is showing us. This is what science says, but it's also what God is showing us, that we're slaves. We're slaves to our passions, what I want, and we're slaves to our pleasures, what I get. And since we're slaves to our passions and pleasures, the Bible elsewhere says we're slaves to sin and death. We're slaves to sin. Even when we want to do the right thing, we can't do it. And even when we don't want to do the wrong thing, we find ourselves doing that. We're slaves to sin. And we're slaves, since we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to what sin gives birth to, which is death. And we all know that death is the ultimate master. No one can escape death. We understand that. We get that one day death will reign over us. And on our deathbed, our passions and our pleasures won't do anything for us in that moment. Death will rule. And so what we see is we've got a problem. All of humanity has a problem. And the problem is we're trapped, and there's no solution within ourselves. You see, when you think about the question, why would anyone put their trust in Jesus, it begins here. It begins with realizing that we have a problem, but it doesn't end there. Right? I mean, if it did, it would be a weird experience coming to church and kicking off a series called Thankful, just talking about the problem we have. No, the Bible doesn't just talk about the problem. It talks about the solution as well. And we see that as we keep reading. What is the solution? Well, we see it from verse 4. It says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This, sorry, we'll stop there. Having uh, the hope of eternal life. The problem is, we're slaves. But the solution here begins with God. He has a solution. And I love that it begins with God. It begins with who God is. It doesn't begin with me, right? Notice that. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God, with his kindness and love. And kindness here, literally the word is in the Greek, philanthropia. And we we get that right? We get philanthropists and people who do philanthropy and all the other ways you can say that word. We get that. So uh, Elizabeth and I were watching a documentary on Bill Gates earlier this year. And you see Bill Gates and you realize he's not just like a genius and not just super rich, but he's into philanthropy. He does nice things for people. He's trying to cure the world, eradicate polio from the whole world. And he's pouring countless of dollars into that, so much money into that. He's trying to deal with the sewerage problem in third world countries and pouring so much money into that. And when you watch this, like when you watch someone being kind to a bunch of people and putting lots of money, you just love it, right? You love watching this happen. I mean, I've never even liked Bill Gates before, but now I love him because of the work that he does for the world. This is what happens when someone does philanthropy. What we see here, this word kindness, that's what it's getting at. It's kind of saying God is the ultimate philanthropist. He loved the world, his kindness towards people. He's trying to do the most amount of good for the most amount of people. And what we see here in this verse is that God's solution God has a solution to the problem. And it doesn't begin with us. We see that, don't we? It doesn't begin with me. In fact, verse 5 says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, so God's love the solution isn't given to me because of me. You know it's not given to me because of my past behavior. I've been to church a number of times and God's solution is given to me because of that. It's not given to me because I'm good enough. You know I'm a pretty nice person and I go to church on Christmas. It's not given to us because of our past behavior, not even that I was baptized. It's not not based on us. We're the problem, not the solution. Nor is it based on our future performance. God's solution, it doesn't say he will love you if you sort your life out. If you can stop looking at certain things, if you can forgive the people that you've been bitter to for so long, if you can, you know, give the certain amount of money. There might be good things to do, but God's love isn't contingent on that. No, the solution doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. His love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. And we see that play out in two ways. See, God's love and kindness, it's not just in words, it's in action. And God shows his love in the giving of himself in two ways. Firstly, in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, in the gift of Jesus. You see, firstly, God gives himself. He shows his love in the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, verse 5, he says, he saved us not because of us. No, he saved us Because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. God gave himself in the Holy Spirit. And those words might feel a bit strange on the surface, but it's essentially what we saw earlier today with the baptism. I mean, baptism is an outward sign of what's taken place on the inside. It's an outward cleansing, if you will, um, because of what's happened on the inside. And the work that happens on the inside of us is the work of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, cleanses us, changes us, washes us, renews us. Notice what we do in that? Nothing. We're washed. We're renewed. We're changed. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives us new passions, new pleasures, new desires, He helps us see Jesus clearly. He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And God generously pours the Holy Spirit out on us. You know, God's not like, He's not a stingy God. You know, where He gives you a little bit of the Holy Spirit? No, generously pours that out upon us. So so that's the first way that God shows His solution to the problem, His love and kindness. It's in the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the second way we see this is in the gift of the Son. In Jesus, God's love and kindness appeared. And I love that we get these two examples. I love that God showed his love in this, like with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus, because the Holy Spirit, is his work described here is unseen. It's internal, it's relational. But the work of Jesus here, it's physical, it's historical, it's it's external. And I love that we get those two kind of contrasts, because the work of the Holy Spirit here is hard to prove. You know, you can see the difference he makes in other people, you see that, like in, in Kanye West, you could, you could see the difference. He didn't even swear on his last album. That might be the work of the Holy Spirit, right? You see the difference he makes in people, in Josh and Adriana, as we saw today. I mean, maybe this is your experience. You were different when you put your trust in Jesus. You know, this was my experience. When I put my trust in Jesus in, uh, just after high school, uh, when I was 18, people could see the difference in me. Instinctively, I bumped into some friends from school and they could see that something had changed. You know, they knew me as this young, arrogant punk and now things had changed a little bit. And you're probably thinking, you're still that way. You should have seen me back then. <laughs> right? Ross was on my schoolies. He wanted to punch me. Um, just ask him about it. This was now, how does that change take place? It's the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But see, if someone rocks up and goes, I don't believe it, I can't prove that. How do you prove that? It's internal. It's relational. But what we have with Jesus is historical. His love appeared. It appeared in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. I mean, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God's love appeared, that Jesus appeared in the manger, that people saw him, the shepherds saw him, the wise men saw him. His love appeared, and he grew up. And his love appeared. And he did signs and wonders to countless of people to the fact where, where uh, his enemies didn't deny his miracles. They just tried to kill him to stop people following him. His love appeared. And then Jesus died on the cross. And three days later, was, he was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he rose again. And what did he do? He appeared. God's love appeared in people. And he appeared risen from the dead to over 500 people, God's love appeared. How good is it that we don't just get God's solution to the problem as an internal, relational solution, but we get external. It's historical. And the reason he appeared is not simply for appearance sake, but as what we read in verse 7, so that he may justify us. And this word justified, it has this idea of a courtroom. It's when guilty people go free. That's what to be justified is. So when someone who's guilty gets off their charge and they're declared not guilty. Jesus died on the cross to take our place, to take our punishment that we deserve for being enslaved to our passions and pleasures. Jesus died to take our place. The innocent one was killed, declared guilty so that guilty ones could go free. Those who were enslaved can be freed from slavery, the slavery of sin and death, and have a hope, not just a hope here and now, but a hope, as verse 7 says, the hope of eternal life. This is God's solution to humanity's problem. This is God's solution to our problem. We were stuck slaves to our passions and our pleasures. We are temperamental people. We can change this afternoon as to different to what we are now. We have a problem. We're slaves to sin and death. But God's solution is the giving of Himself because of His love and kindness, not because of us, but the giving of Himself in the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out and Jesus who appeared, who died, who rose again. This is the solution. This is the problem. And this is why people call Jesus Lord. This is why anyone would call Jesus Lord. This is why right now in 2019, around the globe, people are calling Jesus Lord. This is why right now, today, people will call Jesus Lord right around the planet, because they're seeing the hope of the gospel. They're seeing the hope of the good news of the Bible, that Jesus is Lord, that he did die, that his love appeared, and that he brought a solution to the problem. Now, as we get to the end of this passage, I mean, it does raise the question, if this is why people call Jesus Lord, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us in response to this? And I think it means at least two things for us. First and foremost, it's for those of us who are sitting here who aren't sure about Jesus, who maybe wouldn't describe Jesus as Lord, who are confused about that or have questions. And the first thing it means for us is that we can be confident, and we'd love to encourage you to continue to search for that confidence. I mean, we're glad that you're here as well. We know it's hard to come to church sometimes after a long time. Maybe, you know, it's just hard to be here this morning. We're grateful that you're here. We're thankful that you're here today. But we'd love to continue to encourage you to search for this. We'd love to have a coffee with you and chat with you about this, about what you believe, about your story, about your questions. In fact, in the next few months, we'd love to encourage you to come back. And then the life course that Josh and Adriana talked about earlier, we got that kicking off on the 9th of February. I know it's next year, so that doesn't exist yet. But we'd love to kind of put that in your mind. You know, come along to that. We'd love to continue to search for this because you can be confident that Jesus is Lord, and it's okay if you're not there yet. That's the first thing it means for us. And the second thing it means for us is for those who are confident that Jesus is Lord, who recognize we have a problem, but that Jesus gives us a solution. And what does it mean for us? Well, this is what we see in verse 8. He says there in verse 8, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that, Those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. What does it mean for us who are confident that Jesus is Lord? Well, basically what Paul says is stress these things. Remind yourself over and over again of the good news of the Bible and let that transform your life. Let it impact you and devote yourself to doing what is good. And what is good, that's what we've just looked at. It's the good news of the Bible. It's that humanity has a problem, yet God has a solution. Devote yourself to making this known. Devote yourself to living in light of this. Devote yourself to the good news of Jesus. Devote yourself to what is good. This is what it means for us. Stress these things and do these things. Stress the good news of the Bible and devote yourself to what is good. Now, I think that this is a timely reminder as well. You know, it's December, right? We, We get that. Many of us are sitting here and we're just tired being here. You know, December marks a time of year of exhaustion, of tiredness. It's been a long year for many of us. For some of us, we're in a busy season at the moment and we're just exhausted. We're just tired. This reminder here is not give up doing what is good, but devote yourself to what is good. See, I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm tired, I don't want to do what is good. I don't want to live for Jesus. I don't want to tell people about Jesus. I want to devote myself to anything but that. Right? Like in this season, I want to devote myself to rest. I want to devote myself to sleeping in. I want to devote myself to watching 5 days of cricket non-stop. That's what I want. I want to devote myself to actually catching a fish. That's what I want to do. When we're tired, that's what happens. We drift into our passions and pleasures. We want to give up doing what is good and devote ourselves to what's easy. But what Paul reminds us here and what God calls us to is in light of his solution, in light of the fact that our problem cripples us, enslaves us, in light of the refreshing news that God has given himself generously in the Holy Spirit and in the gift of the Son, whatever season we're in, whether we've been ready for Christmas since October or we're just ready for it to be over, whatever season we're in, to not give up doing what's good, but to devote ourselves to the good news of the Bible, to what God has done for us in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus. Let's pray and ask for help for this. God, we are so grateful that you fixed the problem that we created, that we are. Lord, we're thankful that although we are slaves, you freed us. Thank you, Lord, that the guilty one died in place of us so that the innocent ones, so that the, sorry, the innocent one died in place for us so that the guilty ones could go free. God, we pray that in light of this truth, that this would refresh our souls, that this would restore us and energize us so that we may not give up doing what is good but devote ourselves to what is good for the sake of your people everywhere and so that more people can hear about the solution the Bible gives to humanity's problem. We pray for help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.